Welcome to episode 193 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. This is the objects to observe in the February 2022 night sky. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky. And this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. Happy Lunar New Year, Shane. Oh, thank you. Same to you, sir. Yeah, I went to somebody hosted a, a cultural event in my division on Friday, and I, I attended that as I, I just had intended to uh, attend, but I ended up actually helping um, to broadcast some some of the uh, activities uh, that we were showing because there was a technical glitch. And I'm a technical person, so I said I will help. I was happy to help, but um, yeah, it was, it was really cool. Really cool to kind of hear how uh, how this is celebrated in China. Very cool. All right. Right on. Yeah. Um, so first things first, yes, those who are paying very close attention will notice that we are releasing this one before 192 or 192nd episode. And that's just because of our recording uh, cadence schedule and just the way that we do things around here, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes this happens. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it happens and that's fine. Um yeah, and there's there's a couple sort of funny reasons, and one of them is that we release these ones on the 365 days of astronomy, so it will go out on Thursday, and then for our podcast listeners, it's going to go out um, a few days earlier, so they can kind of take advantage of some of the stuff that uh, that is happening in those first couple days of the month, um, and so we kind of just split the difference, and sometimes uh, you know we'll release an episode before. Uh, the other episode that we recorded uh, earlier, just the way, just the way that we do it. So um, do you want to talk about some of the guests? We have some guests coming up on the show. Speaking of sort of our own, uh, you know, podcast stream, uh, we've got a few guests coming up, Shane. Who do you yeah. lined up? You have, you have a couple of people lined up, I think. Yeah, well, just one right now. Um, so next weekend is uh, going to be Mike Rector from the Adirondack Astronomy YouTube channel. Uh, he does a lot of sketching and visual astronomy. And excited to have a conversation uh, with Mike. Cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I was uh, look, checking his YouTube channel out and, and seeing what's going on there. Um, I know, we, I think he's done some stuff with uh, with our friend uh, Mark Radici before. And then, yep. uh, uh, speaking of which, Mark lined us up with uh, with Mary McIntyre, who's also an astronomical sketcher. We're going to have a great conversation with her, I think, at the end of February. Yeah, yeah. She does a lot of imaging, too, like really good imaging. So um, multi, multi-talented. Yeah, well, she's uh, an FRAS, which is a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society in the in uh, in the UK. So, kind of excited to hear about that as well. And then uh, I was chatting to uh, to a, a, a long ago, uh, you know, speaker of ours when we were first uh, getting in speakers over the uh, internet back years ago. Shane, we had Don McColtz on as I think he was our first remote. Uh, speaker, and he's also uh, going to come on the podcast and talk about uh, doing a Messier marathon in March. In March, yeah. So Messier marathon um, is when you can observe most, if and depending on your latitude, sometimes all of the Messier objects in one night. Yeah. Um, if you're very well organized and have lots of energy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've tried to do it. Uh, Try to do it on a couple occasions. Um, yeah, I got quite a few. I think one year I did. It, I did it with uh, with with a observing friend of mine once years and years ago, and and we we started observing them separately, and then kind of started observing them together. And sort of the the two of us got a hundred and three together. I think something like that. Well, that's uh, pretty good. Yeah. yeah, that was fun. It was fun. I don't think it's something I'm, I would necessarily do every year, but, uh, but yeah, it's just something uh, 
something that uh, that Don McColtz uh, helped to help to kind of uh, start. And uh, so we're going to have him on and, and talk with that. I have his book on it and uh, talk a little bit about that too. So um, moving ahead, um, Sky Safari kept shutting down. So I might need to do an upgrade there, but I think, I think I got it worked out. Somehow I'm in, I'm on a tablet, which is really a laptop pretending to be a tablet. And so I think my software just got confused over, over what it was doing. Um, but maybe we'll talk first about some basics about learning the night sky, because we haven't gone over these in a, in a few months. And for those that are just learning the night sky and getting going, um, what's one way we use to measure stuff as we look at it in, in space, Shane? How do, we, how do we know that something is so far from, from something else? Is there sort of a standard way we, we can you know, figure out how far things are apart in the sky? Yeah. So using just like your eyes, uh, visual observing, um, we, we, we refer to the distance of objects in degrees, you know, the moon is, uh, you know, one degree wide or the moon is, yeah, sorry. The moon is half a degree wide (laughs) or, um, you know, the moon is 12 degrees away from Jupiter or, or whatever it might be. And, um, one one unit of measurement to, to quickly navigate how many degrees uh, you're looking at is your fist. So, you know, if you hold your fist out at arm's length, the width of your fist from one, you know, from one knuckle to the end of, to the end of the hand to the other knuckle is uh, 10 degrees. And that gives you a bit of an idea then of how far things are in the sky. Yeah. And, and it's important what you said, like when we're visually looking at the sky, we don't actually measure distance in space by the fist. Like we don't talk about how many fists the uh, moon is away from the earth. Cause it would be like 8 trillion fists or something like that. We're just talking about, like you said, when we're looking at, at the moon in the sky and then we see Jupiter is relatively nearby, maybe it's about 12 degrees away. So you hold up your fist and then yeah, sure enough that it's just a little bit larger than your fist in, in distance. And, uh, and I think you've said this before, you know, um, the way that it works is we're all kind of built to about the same proportions. And so whether it's, whether it's me and I'm a, I'm a slightly shorter person and I hold up my fist at arm's length, or whether you're Shane, who's a, who's definitely a slightly taller person and he holds up his fist at arm's length. Um, when we're, when we're both looking at our respective fists, um, we're, we're able to kind of uh, match that to, to about this, this 10 degrees um, on the night sky. All right. When somebody says they're going to be, uh, they're, they're interested. So I, I get this, I'm teaching my astronomy class and, and I've had this question recently. Um, I'm thinking about a first telescope. What is your recommendation for a first telescope? Um, I guess usually it's, it's an eight inch, uh, Dobsonian, like one of the sky watchers, um, uh, Orion's like there's, there's a few manufacturers of them mm-hmm. and, uh, they're, they're probably the best value slash quality uh, that you can get. And they're a wonderful telescope that can last you a lifetime. Um, so that's one. Uh, I know we, we kind of bounce around. There's a few different beginner telescopes that we recommend. Uh, another one that you've talked about quite a bit in the past is the, uh, the various flavors of ST80s, all uh, mm-hmm. achromatic refractor. Yeah. And if somebody was looking for, you know, they're still not really sure if astronomy is for them. Um, I think one of the things that we do recommend is starting out with a pair of binoculars. I eh? like just a simple totally. pair of binoculars that might already own and uh, trying those out on the night sky, because that's really going to take you about halfway between what your eye can see um, to what a telescope 
scope can see. And then you're not fighting with uh, mirror reversed images or confusing orientation or small fields of view. Um, and a lot of the other things that I think when people go and, and they jump, uh, well, I'm really interested in astronomy, so I'm going to buy a telescope and then learn how to do astronomy, um, that can sometimes create uh, barriers for people we've noticed. So we, we sometimes try to guide them towards getting binoculars or then like in my class, often people show up and they, they've bought like nice little telescopes or whatever, but, uh, but are having some trouble. And I say, Hey, look, just, just kind of take a step back, get some binoculars, get some basic charts and uh, make some good recommendations for some charts here. Like uh, what would be a good book with charts in it, Shane? Um, we, again, we've recommended night watch quite a bit, uh, by Terrence Dickinson. It's a great beginners, uh, uh, book to the sky. Um, another one too, that is really good, whether or not you're a beginner or somebody, somebody that is maybe a little bit more advanced is the sky and telescope pocket sky Atlas. Uh, oh yeah. That's, that's another great one too. And it's uh, fairly inexpensive. Yeah. Yeah. The pocket Atlas is great. It's, it's just an Atlas. It's not a book. It just, just has stars uh, covering the night sky and, the great thing about that is that it uh, it draws those main star patterns that we kind of all begin to know and, and learn as we're doing astronomy. Like instead of just having the stars plot it, like a lot of the atlases do, um, it actually draws like that W pattern of Cassiopeia or, you know, draws in uh, sort of that uh, Scorpius figure of uh, Scorpion or the teapot of uh, Sagittarius uh, kind of draws those those traditional lines in so that you can uh, more easily use that sort of chart. But if you still are just kind of learning those patterns, I think Night Watch is, is perhaps a better direction to go in. And then if you're not looking really to spend any money at all, uh, and we're not affiliated with any of these things, but skymaps.com actually has some uh, great monthly charts that uh, they put out for the evening sky as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's another good resource that costs you nothing. Cost you nothing. And something that will cost you almost nothing, but it's probably almost like the most critical thing here is to make a little red flashlight. Eh? How could you make a little red flashlight for using it at the at the telescope or, or on your charts? And uh, yeah, how, how would you make a little red flashlight chain? There's, there's, there's a few different ways. Um, you can sometimes buy like red duct tape to put over just any old flashlight. Um, you can use paint. Uh, there's a number of ways you can, you can turn your light red. Um, the other thing is, is to try to find if possible, a flashlight that has variable brightness, because, mm -hmm. um, even a red flashlight can be too bright. And the problem with light and nighttime observing is it, it takes your eyes about 30 minutes to fully adapt to uh, seeing as much as they can see in the, in the nighttime for your pupils to fully dilate. And if you have too bright of a red light, or if you have white or blue lights around, um, it, it impacts your night vision. You won't be able to see as much. So, mm -hmm. uh, you want to use as little light as, uh, what is required. And then any light you use, uh, red, or we're also saying Amber, uh, is also, uh, you know, an acceptable light. Yeah. Yeah. And so why do we use, uh, red lights at night? What's, what's the advantage of that over using say like the bright white light on your, on your cell phone that we all have now? Yeah, you're, it, it just preserves your night vision. Uh, you're, you're like a white light will, um, will shrink your pupils and then, you know, the, they're not as sensitive to faint light. Um, whereas is red, red light or that red spectrum just isn't as, uh, impactful to your pupil dilation. Yeah. And so one thing I did try to do last year for some reason, I can't remember why, but 
I tried to uh, sort of red light my cell phone light and uh, that just doesn't work. It's just, it's just way too bright. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it didn't, it didn't work at all. And then um, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, kind of using a red light. And one of the other things, you know, people may be wondering, like, why do you bother using paper charts at all? And I think in general, our recommendation is to use paper charts because uh, of this uh, white light spectrum. And even if you dim your phone or or tablet down so far and put it in red mode, um, it can be very difficult to read when you're actually out under the stars. And typically it's still too bright. And then the other thing, this is the thing that I learned because I was out and I was, I was doing a project once and, and those sort of things maybe didn't matter as much. Um, but the one thing that kind of confused me a fair bit was that um, when you're using software, sometimes the, the scaling can be off or the orientation can be off and it can be very difficult um, to kind of match up that scale and the orientation with whatever it is that you're doing. So for example, if you're, if you're looking at an object through the telescope, but you're trying to find it, see, you, you have to go back and forth maybe between the telescope and the software, but you need to be able to have that software set at the right kind of perspective that you're going to see through the telescope. But when you're out there in the field, it kind of feels like you have to do it the other way around and that doesn't work. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Let's talk about what you can actually see in the nighttime sky this month. So February 1st, what do we got on February 1st? We have something going on there. Well, we have a new moon. So this is the time uh, to do your dark sky observing. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have a young moon on uh, February 1st, uh, mm-hmm. 17 yeah. hours old, which is, um, yeah, that's a young moon. Yeah, I think for us here in uh, in Saskatchewan or the middle of, of North America, so that middle uh, longitude line, I think we're looking at about 19 hours um, mm. generally where, where we are here. And that's still an extremely young moon. And in fact, I think probably from, from here, um, a 19 hour moon is probably a more uh, feasible uh, thing to achieve. 17 hours is that's, that's really, really a thin moon. In fact, I, I have seen moons that are, you know, well under that 24 hour period, um, which is always a bit of a challenge. And, and once you get too far under 20 hours, you get like a broken arc like you're not even seeing like an arc of the moon anymore you're just kind of seeing a line of uh broken craters along the rim and i've certainly seen that seen that once and uh, it's very cool to see but uh the chances of getting it when it's that close to the horizon are are very low yeah yeah and this is um for for people that are uh, really into lunar observing, this is a, a cool opportunity to see young moons. Um, some people, this is, you know, like kind of the, uh, uh, like on their wish list of objects to observe. And and that's like, how young of a moon can I actually see? And mm-hmm. it's kind of a fun thing. Yeah, it is. Um, but for those that aren't into that, uh, a night later on February 2nd, the moon is going to be um, sort, of, sort of kind of like plus or minus four degrees away from um, the southeastern side of Jupiter. So that's going to be, um, the moon will be below and, uh, and to the left of Jupiter there. It's going to kind of cut underneath it, I guess. And uh, so you actually be able to see the moon and Jupiter. I think most places on Earth will be able to see this, um, the moon and Jupiter that close. And that's close enough that through a really wide field telescope, like my little ST80 that I've modified with the two-inch focuser and my wide uh, low power eyepiece uh, gives me about six degrees. So I would be able to get the moon and Jupiter in the uh, same field of view of my telescope. 
Yeah. And, and most binoculars should show that too. Like a lot of binoculars yep. will probably be around that five degree field of view. And, um, you know, with binoculars, you'll see a, a, like a lot of detail on the moon yep. uh, right around the Terminator, but you should also be able to see the Galilean moons uh, orbiting around Jupiter, uh, depending on their arrangement that night. So uh, that'll be a neat binocular observation. Yeah, it might be getting a little low to see the moons. If you have really clear skies, you, you might get some. And then, uh, yeah, uh, like you were saying, a binocular is probably the best bet unless people have uh, really small, uh, you know, what we call fast uh, little telescopes with with the ability to put wide field eyepieces on. But I know a lot of people do. You know, we had an email recently from a listener who bought a 70 millimeter telescope that has uh, a wide enough field of view to see that. Okay, on the third um, so to continue on with the path of the moon, the moon and Neptune are going to be visible together in the early evening sky, and they will be also in the same binocular field of view. Yeah, that'll so. be, that'll be pretty neat. And, and, um, the, the, like the Neptune and Uranus are a little tougher to locate sometimes because they're not nearly as bright as like Jupiter, Saturn, Mars, um, so when you get Neptune or Uranus close to the moon, it's just a nice anchor point to, uh, observe some of those distant planets. Yeah. Speaking of, uh, planets on February 5th, we have Massalia. Am I saying that right? I think so. Okay. Yeah. So Massalia is, uh, it's a minor planet. It's an asteroid and it's part, it's actually the, the parent body of the Massala family of asteroids, uh, which are located in our inner solar system. Uh, it is pretty big, 145 kilometers in diameter. Hmm. Yeah, that's so a that, good size. Yeah, and it's going to be magnitude 8.5, um, which for those that may not know the magnitude scale, um, that's too faint to see with your unaided eye, but that is bright enough to get in a, in a pair of binoculars from a reasonably dark location. Yeah, yeah, and would look great again in a, a telescope. Although... Uh, one thing uh, to distinguish with minor planets, um, they're really going to just appear as a point of light, almost like a star. Um, you know, Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, you can start to bring out the disk of the planet for sure uh, with a telescope, but mm, not really with these uh, asteroids or, or these minor planets. Yeah. Okay, moving along, um, sort of continuing on with our with our moon theme. And um, I think, well, I'm going to say this first about Massalia is that a lot of uh, the listeners have been tracking down these um, asteroids and minor planets. I've been really surprised by that. It's been really neat to get um, people's observations, to get people's images. Some of them have been stacked images. So you can actually see the dots of like the asteroid as it's making its way among the stars. Um, well, background stars as, as we see them from Earth um, or like a streak or something like that. Like that's been really a cool thing to see, I. Eh? Yeah. Yeah. And, and kind of surprising, like you and I have had a couple of conversations that we weren't sure what the level of interest would be in minor planets, but there's quite a few people observing them, which is awesome. Yeah. So we've decided to make sure to continue including these um, inside the, uh, the objects to observe in the nighttime sky each month. Uh, I, again, it was something we didn't think people might be observing as much, but it turns out a lot of people are observing these. And I think one reason why is that like, for example, at magnitude 8.5, and these are objects that kind of look stellar. So they might be a little bit easier to see than perhaps a deep sky object. And they require um, typically going out if you're going to do it visually and looking over the course of a night or a few nights or a couple nights, a, a few days apart. 
Um, then you can kind of draw the field and, and see the object having moved sort of among the stars um, as, it, as it orbits in our solar system. And, uh, and yeah, that, that's really cool. And so it's something that you can do even uh, from the city. For example, in a, in a good four or five inch telescope, uh, you'd easily be able to, to have that set up. And if you have tracking, you might be able to use your, your go-to to, to put it on there. But then again, um, it's just going to look like a star. So you, you do have to like sketch the field or take a photo or do something and then um, come back uh, sometime later, like a day or a few days later and, and repeat that process to confirm that observation. But it's really cool to do. And apparently a lot of people are into doing this more so than I would have thought. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it just extends, you know, what you can look at out there. Um, it's nice to have kind of a full repertoire of objects to look at, because that means probably on just about any given clear night, you, you'll have something to look for. Yeah. And I can't remember when it was exactly, Shane, but we did do a whole episode on that back at the end of November, beginning of, I think it was the end of November, something like that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it was right around uh, when Sirius was uh, very prominent. Um, I think we focused a lot more on minor planet observing at that time. So uh, probably some more details if people are interested. Yeah, you can go. People can go hunting for that in our archive. Um, February 7th, kind of continuing on with the moon, the moon and Uranus are going to be together in Aries. And I think uh, for some reason, I think part of my note got uh, expunged here, but I think you'd be able to see them. Uh, in the same field of view in a binocular as well. And Uranus is uh, a fair bit brighter than Neptune. Neptune's about eighth magnitude. Um, so, so that one might be a little challenging to see if you've never seen it before. And um, you, you're definitely going to you know, need to maybe do some internet searching to figure that one out. Whereas the moon and Uranus, well, Uranus is uh, about 5.7 or 5.8 magnitude now. So that's well within the easy range of a binocular um, from the city. So I should be able to see the moon and then be able to identify uh, Uranus. It may be like the brightest star in that, uh, in that field with, uh, with the moon on that night. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Another good anchor point there to find one of the distant planets. Yeah, pretty cool to be able to kind of work through those. Like a lot of the time people do want to see them. And I'm going to kind of say this. So, you know, one one of the things that's mentioned sometimes in beginner astronomy books is, um, and you know, I've talked about this in the past, sometimes they can almost um, downplay or maybe even get get pretty far along the bashing thread of, of uh, sort of putting down um, some of the entry-level telescopes people may have have picked up. And, and you and I tried to uh, steer away from doing that, eh? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah. yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, um, uh, is, as long as you can achieve focus, um, you know, even, even cheap telescopes can provide some amazing images. Yeah, there's uh, there's an artist over in uh, in Quebec who who I've uh, had some correspondence with uh, over the past year or so, and uh, she took uh, like what would be considered a really inexpensive department store telescope, and with a little bit of DIY, she turned it into a little work of art, and and has made some beautiful like drawings of Mars and the Moon and uh, different things of that nature, um, just by simply adapting it to take slightly better eyepieces, stabilizing the tripod, getting a different uh, mount head for it that she get at a yard sale. Um, so she hasn't spent more than um, a couple hundred bucks or what a good pair of new binoculars would cost. And uh, she's kind of whipped together a, a really, really cool little telescope and, and lots of people would be able to uh, make those modifications. Um, 
and then then as well you know um i you know i've had people come through my astronomy class and have done this um with the moon as it passes by uranus and neptune or even hunted down some of the asteroids um just with like the most inexpensive telescope that they picked up um, at a large box store. And, uh, that really impressed me because I, I actually, at that time, you know, this is years ago, I, I wouldn't have thought that would be an easy thing to do. And it's not, but, um, you know, some people just said, well, look, that's, that's all the money I wanted to spend on this. And, uh, you know, but I did want to be able to, to find all the planets for myself at one point in time. So it's kind of cool that, uh, that people are able to do that. So, you know, these telescopes sometimes can be a bit of a hindrance to observing, but, uh, but definitely if, if people have the, uh, you know, um, you know, dedication to go out and do this, it, it certainly is possible. People can see amazing things with these uh, really inexpensive telescopes. Eh? Yeah. Yeah. Like they're very capable, like you said, some small modifications and, and uh, they can be really solid performers. Yeah. Uh, moving right on to the moon have you ever seen the lunar straight wall have you ever observed this oh yeah 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 um using a telescope and it is a very very cool uh feature to observe because through the telescope uh it's quite large and it's a very prominent black line and it looks quite straight and the photographs you see that it certainly isn't quite as straight as it appears visually but yeah um i'm trying to think what telescope probably my 76 millimeter i think is when uh is the one that i'm or the observation that i'm thinking of mm-hmm. and uh, i wasn't using super high power but yeah it's a very cool thing to look at yeah and you can see it uh in february on february 9th that uh, that evening and it's uh, it's visible for some time i forget what it is but it's like 30 or 40 hours or something. It's, it's quite visible for a couple of days. Um, so really uh, any, any of the days kind of surrounding uh, February 9th, probably give you a, a fairly good chance of, uh, of seeing it, but is it, it, is it a fault line or like a giant escarpment or do you remember what it is exactly? Yeah, I don't recall. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but it is, it is like, I think one of those two things, um, either a fault line or, or some kind of escarpment. And, uh, essentially again, it's a shadow play with the sun and, uh, the angle of the moon, but it, it, there's a, a dark shadow that's cast that forms this straight line. Yeah. I do kind of see it's referred to as both, uh, sort of looking up really quick on Wikipedia says it's uh, an escarpment and then in, a, in other places it's uh, listed as a fault. So, um, but anyway, yeah, it's uh, that, that's a pretty neat thing to be able to see. So um, let's see, moving ahead and, and sticking with uh, February 9th on this day, you will be able to see Ceres. The minor planet Ceres is going to be very, very close to the moon, um, less than one degree away from most locations. Um, hmm. It's, it, and, and maybe there's an occultation there. I think there is, like the South Pacific or something, but uh, don't know if anybody down there will be uh, listening to our podcast, but, um, but on that night series um, is I think the largest minor planet in our solar system. And you'll be able to see it um, very, very close to the moon. So uh, you might need to, uh, to Google that to get a good finer chart, but uh, that would definitely be uh, a pretty neat observation for, for people to make, uh, you know, both the moon, the straight wall, and, uh, and series sort of all, you know, as, as sort of three different uh, aspects of, uh, uh, of this phase of the moon that we're able to, uh, to see on February 9th. Do you know what magnitude it will be that night? I, I don't, but I think, yeah. I think it gets fairly bright. I think it'd probably be around like eighth magnitude or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, uh, and as well, the moon will be placed right between the Hyades and the Pleiades that night. So the, uh, the two open clusters there, you know, um, are well visible in the evening winter sky. And if somebody's just learning the, uh, the, the star patterns, constellations, some of the brighter clusters um, on February 9th, if you're not interested in, in sort of looking at, at those more perhaps challenging things, um, you can just kind of go out with your eye and sort of eyeball where the moon is. And then above and to the right, you're going to have the Pleiades. And then below and to the left, you're going to have the Hyades. Yeah, yeah. Uh, great, you know, a great little observing session right there, just in that part of the sky. Yeah, hadn't intended that, but kind of made all those notes. Okay, um, February 12th, Venus is going to be at its greatest illumination, and uh, that's going to be in the uh, morning sky in the uh, sort of southeast uh, when people get up in the morning. I've been watching just with my eye, and it's it's exceptionally bright. Mm-hmm. Have you been have you been have you been able to to look at it, or is it is it sort of below the houses behind you? No, no, I've seen it quite a bit the last week uh, going into work. And uh, yeah, on my drive in, you know, it's it's well positioned. And like you said, it's it's quite bright. Yeah. Yeah. And then we have on February 13th, Venus and Mars in the same eight degree binocular field. So um, yeah, so Mars is starting to come around. We have uh, an opposition of Mars coming up in early December. I think it's uh, end of the first, uh, beginning of the second week of December of 2022. But um, for now, we'll just be able to watch it kind of pairing up with different planets and the moon uh, in the morning sky. And February 13th is uh, is when Venus and Mars are going to be together in the same eight degree binocular field. So they're about, they're about seven degrees apart, I think. So you need a pretty wide field instrument to uh, to be able to get them together in. Yeah. Yeah. Eight degrees is, is getting to be pretty wide for, for a lot of instruments. Um, but there are some binos like binoculars that can achieve that. And I suppose in some cases, uh, there, there's a few telescopes that can do that too. And where, what might work best. And there's lots of people out there now doing, uh, photographs and, uh, and learning the night sky is, is this would make a pretty photograph for sure. You could have mm-hmm. maybe something in the foreground. I'm not a photographer, um, but I'm just tossing that out because, uh, certainly, uh, you know, most photographic lenses are, are going to capture a huge swath of the sky, much, much larger than eight degrees. And, you know, you could, you could have a, a nice, uh, pretty picture, I think, uh, of Venus and Mars and some of these other planetary pairings that we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Good suggestion. Yeah. And so then on the 16th, we're going to have a full moon and the full moon is actually going to be uh, relatively close to Regulus, which is the brightest star in Leo, the lion. And, uh, in, in, in the same wide field binocular view, um, you know, uh, really you're going to need a pretty wide field binocular to be able to see, uh, Regulus and, and the moon. So, uh, again, might, might make a nice uh, photograph for those that are into doing that. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That morning though, Mercury is going to be at its greatest elongation West. So if you get up really early on February 16th, you're going to see uh, Mercury um, very, very close. So it's going to be below and left or to the South East of Venus. So kind of leading up to this, we have, uh, you know, some conversation about Venus and Venus and Mars and such. So Venus is exceptionally bright. Venus is much, much brighter than Mercury though. And Mercury is much, much lower down. So, um, you know, it's one of those things, again, you might need to Google and kind of get a feel for what it looks like. Kind of looks like to me, sort of like an orangish, yellowish, 
um, star and it's going to be in a bright part of the sky. So just be really close because when you are looking into uh, the bright part of the sky, just know when your local sunrise is going to be because you don't ever want to look at the sun either with your eye or through a telescope or anything like that. Um, so we do have to kind of put that disclaimer on, but Mercury is going to be at its farthest point from the sun on February 16th. And so that makes uh, a good opportunity, but if the sky is getting bright, then it's and and the stars are fading out too much, then, uh, then yeah, it's just too bright to see Mercury anyway. So just stop looking. Um, but yeah, while it's still, uh, dusky or, or dawny or whatever, then just go out and, um, uh, and, and try for it. And, uh, yeah, it might take a couple, couple mornings though, maybe start on the, the 14th or 15th or something and, and leading up to it usually takes me a night or two to get it or morning or two. Yeah. It's always nice to, you know, do practice runs of where it is and just sort of get, um, comfortable or associated with that part of the sky. And then when the 16th comes around, you, you're probably going to have more success that way. Yep. Moving on with the moon, uh, the moon and, uh, Spica in Virgo, they're going to pair up again, uh, about an eight degree, uh, binocular, uh, pairing for us. So super wide field or, or a nice photographic view, or just simply, um, for those that are learning the night sky on February 20th, that moon is going to be, um, you know, just, just a good distance away from Spica. So basically, um, you know, the brightest star that's, that's nearest the moon is going to be the star Spica in Virgo. And that's what you can do is you can actually use the moon, um, to discover, um, the nighttime sky. So many people are going to be familiar with, um, constellations or star patterns like the big dipper, or maybe Cassiopeia W or Orion. And then people are often wondering, like, how do you learn the rest of the sky? Well, using the moon is one of those techniques. So as it passes by bright stars and planets and such like that, um, you can actually use it to learn those stars. And, and then you can uh, know which star is, for example, Spica in this case. And then a few nights later, you go out, the moon's out of the sky. So the sky's darker and then you can kind of start to trace out those other patterns. And you might not get it like that first month, but after subsequent months and after doing this for years, you'll, you'll eventually kind of piece together um, all of those constellations. And, uh, you know, if you're really committed, you can probably really, really learn them all pretty good over the course of, of a year or two, eh? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's really just about putting in the time and, and, uh, you know, looking at the sky and matching it up to your charts and, and it'll become, it'll become old hat pretty quick. Yep. Also in, in February every year, um, as, as it's starting to get dark after we get about a week past full moon. So this would be, uh, so about the 23rd of, uh, February, maybe the 22nd of February, in the, in the evening sky, if you're at a very dark location, um, you may notice like a pillar of light in the west, sort of in the west and kind of pointing um, sort of, uh, you know, up and to the left coming out of the west, at least for us anyway. And this is called the zodiacal light. And what this is, is, uh, well, it's sort of a, a recent thing, but originally it was thought to be um, interplanetary particles. Um, and it is, um, but they were thought to be sort of more, more spread out amongst the solar system. So what you're seeing is this plane of particles, um, in the plane of the solar system as illuminated by the sun. Of course, we're looking away from the sun, but those particles are looking towards the sun and it happens that our angle is just right from the earth that we can see them right now. But I think in recent years, they've discovered that uh, a lot of those particles are kind of emanating from the planet Mars as, as Mars is giving off its atmosphere into space. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. And, uh, if, if that's a topic that, uh, kind of piques your interest, it's well worth doing a little bit of research there because it's pretty cool. Yeah. I think uh, when Dave Chapman was on a few months ago, I think he was talking about, I think back in the, in the summer, I think he was talking about that. Yeah. 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 Dave, uh, Dave did the research and it's pretty cool. Yeah. He, he did an episode with us on the, um, Gegenschein or Gegenschein. And then, um, did talk about that in that episode, I think it was like July 28th or something like that. So if you want to dig back through our archive, they can find it there on February 24th, we're going to have the moon and Antares in the morning sky. So again, you can keep following that moon along every month. And, uh, because of, um, you know, the, the constellations, um, kind of, kind of moving along through the course of the year, the moon pairs up with different stars throughout the year. So you're going to, you know, next month, maybe, um, you know, over, over the course of the next several months, the moon will be making close, um, you know, apparent approaches to, to, uh, Antares. Um, but then, you know, as, as we move out throughout the year, then it will, it will be, uh, coming along and, and getting close to, to other stars as we see them from, from the earth. So you can kind of use that moon as a guide, but anyway, on a, on February 24th, that's when the moon and, and Antares are going to be close. And then on the morning, so there's a few mornings here um, at the end of the month where um, February 27th and 28th, even probably even, you know, the day leading up to it, um, Venus, the moon and Mars are going to be in an alignment in the eastern sky in the morning so that would be a great photographic opportunity i know we mentioned um you know for those who do like to take photos there's going to be some pairings of the planets and the moon and such earlier in the month um by the end of the month if if you want uh and you're a photographer that that would probably be sort of the cherry on the cake once you've kind of gotten a few skills under your belt yeah yeah nice alignment to take advantage of what have we got for comets this month shane what's our commentary roundup uh, so we have 19P Borelli. Uh, we've talked about this in, in recent podcasts. Uh, it's an evening comet. That's, uh, you know, I think within the reach of most small telescopes. Yep. Um, so it begins the month in Cetus and it will be around magnitude nine and a half. Um, so, uh, yeah, most amateur telescopes should be able to reach that. Uh, the coma is, uh, it's pretty good size, uh, three and a half arc minutes. That seems yep. really large. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, we've had reports, we've had listeners writing us, but I think there's been three or four different listeners that have sent us observations. And I think the January edition of sky and telescope of which I have many copies of right now, um, has, uh, has some good finer charts for that. I think they've got finer charts on their website as well as, uh, Skyhound. If people check Skyhound for comets, they will also uh, just Google Skyhound comets and and you'll get some good commentary uh finer charts yeah yeah uh it's expected to slowly brighten and then we'll be moving into pisces by the end of the month yeah sounds good yeah and then we have um c 2019 l3 atlas um so this is uh the other side of the day so this will be in the morning um also visible in small telescopes uh, this one will begin in Gemini uh, at magnitude 9.4, so very similar brightness to Borelli. Uh, but the coma is a little bit larger, so it's uh, four and a half arc minutes. And uh, the, the brightness should remain constant for the month. 
Um, it'll be interesting if anybody observes both of these, because mm-hmm. what I'm kind of curious about is they're both similar magnitudes, but different sizes. And mm-hmm. when you have the same magnitude spread out over a larger amount of uh, space, it usually doesn't appear then quite as bright to the eye. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, if anybody observes both of these comets, I would love to hear about your, your comparison, uh, about what they look like. Yeah. Um, yeah, that'd be really good. And, uh, so anything else to, to add, Shane, do you have any double stars or anything this month? Yeah, I'll throw a couple double stars in. Why not? Um, so the first one I'll talk about is in Taurus. It's, uh, it's known as Phi Taurus, uh, is the, the system. Um, these, this double star system is actually an optical system, which means just from our alignment on earth and what we can see looking in that direction, it looks like these two stars are associated, but they're actually not. It's just, uh, just the position of everything and and our perspective. But what's interesting about, uh, this system here, or not really a system, but this optical pair is, um, they're, they're, they're really prominent colors. One star is gold. Uh, kind of yellowish and the other one is blue. Um, so that's pretty cool. Uh, and there's a, there's an unrelated bright star there too. That's kind of an orangey red. That's opposite of the B star in this, uh, optical alignment. So, um, what's neat is you see some colors and that is kind of the theme. The, uh, the second double system that I'll talk about here, uh, where the heck did I, oh, I lost it on my list. <laughs> uh, yeah, that can happen. There we go. There it's, go. uh, it's in, uh, Canis major, uh, HR two, seven, six, four. Uh, this is known as the winter Alberio. So, um, double star aficionados or anybody interested in double stars has probably looked at Alberio, uh, which is in the constellation of Cygnus. And it's the star that's at the bottom of the cross in Cygnus. And it's quite, uh, popular because it's, uh, again, a blue and kind of an orangey star. And, and when you see these two different star color or these two stars with different colors that close, the, the color contrast becomes very prominent. And, um, this winter Alberio pairing here, uh, the main star is, is orangey and the companion is kind of a pale, almost sky blue. Uh, it's a beautiful pair and, um, uh, you know, this is the time of the year to, to have a look. So I, I can't recommend those two enough. I've looked at them both and they're, they're quite stunning in a, in a telescope. Yeah. Well, speaking of beer or whatever, beerio. anyway, um, time, it might be time for lunch soon. Do you have anything else to add to this episode? That is all Chris. All right. Well, thanks, Shane. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And be sure to subscribe in your podcatching software. And we're always very, very excited to get emails and observations to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.